0: Hello there, dear listener. Another week, another gomology. And uh, looking out of the window here in suburban Norway, it's definitely spring vibes and it's getting harder to wear tweed. So what better to do than head off to London for a spot of dashing tweeds? Oh, and uh, thank you for all the lovely reviews on Apple Podcasts and emails. It helps a lot. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is very, very much within my sort of thing, you understand, once we get cracking here. Now, uh, Guy, I believe you're in London?
1: Indeed, yes, in Primrose Hill,
0: as we speak. Would you like to introduce yourself and uh, tell us about what you're up to? Uh,
1: yes, I'm Guy Hills. Um, I'm the founder of Dashing Tweeds, uh, which is a weave-based um I um, saw so menswear, mostly menswear uh, label, but we, um, we weave interesting fabrics and I've got my whole idea is to give men and women just a greater choice of uh, fabulous tweed fabrics.
0: I've never heard a business described as a weave-based business. Now clearly we're going to have to go way, way back in time here to, um, well, why not start by your early days because I think you've sort of grown up in London.
1: Um, and I, spent, I spent all my life in, in, in London and um Actually I went off to university uh, in Bristol, uh, where it was raining all the time and I just grabbed one of my father's tweed jackets and wore it uh, all the time at university no matter rain yeah. or shine and uh, just sort of lived this in this jacket and then sort of f- uh, fell in love with tweed as a uh, as a fabric uh, from from then and then I um, embarked on a career as a fashion photographer, so I always liked kind of clothes and style and everything um, so I worked uh, uh, in London. Uh, dressing up it was a great time actually when i was uh, after university it was sort of the 90s uh, 80s 90s and then to 2000s it was uh, it was a very interesting time for menswear because people were rediscovering menswear and I was, just, actually, I was listening to your one of your other um interviewers um uh, describing how uh, his generation had to be retaught how to uh how to wear um clothes formal clothes but i had a fantastic uh, wardrobe of my father's and my grandfather's and just started enjoying kind of trying all, all different things and The clothes I liked most were tweed clothes because they were the way that men wore colour. So there were these fabulous, colourful fabrics, and um, vintage was becoming quite big in the 2000s. And then you go rumbling through uh, vintage stores and discover fantastically colourful tweeds. At the same time, designers like Vivian Westwood were using tweed, uh, well, at the same time earlier, I guess, um, to uh, subvert society. So I sort of uh, became in love with this material. That was the the beginning of the... uh, of the um, sort of journey.
0: That's an interesting time, the eighties, because that was kind of the sort of new romantic phase when I think did, was tweed in or out, and you also had the punks. It was tweed in or out there? The mods? Um, um, yeah,
1: it was, it was definitely dressing up. Well, mods all wore, wore um, mohair, which is a really fabulous uh, cloth. So it's a mohair tonic. Uh, that two-tone fantastic kind of mod suits are amazing and they're made out of um well, uh, mohair is from goats incredibly hard wearing um so if you were a kind of modern you were and you were out on your scooter and partying then what, what they would do there were many more tailors around in that era this is sort of before my time really because I was uh, only in my teens then but there were uh tailors in Carnaby Street um, which is a sort of more, much more trendy era of Soho, it was the Stone Street, the other side of Regent Street from Savile Row, which is where all the kind of gentlemen's tailors were, and they um, classically would um, uh, let uh, young mods uh, pay instalments uh, for their for their suits. But people were still getting suits tailored, and it was the epitome of cool. I mean, I wasn't particularly a mod, but. Um, Mod was all about dressing in a sort of very modern Italian style. And then the New romantics you mentioned, that was more on my kind of uh, radar because it was uh, people just wearing really dressing up as pirates. And, you know, that was definitely when I was at school, there were people starting to sort of wear silk scarves and jump around and have a mixture of sort of old frayed dinner jackets and colourful 80s clothes. So it was a really fun time to grow up when colour was very much uh, around, around you. Um, so yes, yeah, it's it's, it's uh, it all formed into the melting bound of my uh, of my upbringing.
0: But you chose to go into fashion photography. How did that come about?
1: I mean, I, always, I sort of loved clothes and I loved dressing up. And then um, my um, stepmother taught me to sew. She had a dressing uh, at, at, at a shop, a, uh, a women's wear shop. So I used to sort of sew myself up. Crazy partying outfits, and uh, when I discovered I could <laughs> make, make things, and so that was this when I was about sort of fifteen, um, before university. And then my mother was a, a photojournalist, and um, and she was uh, she was a journalist, and then she was uh, had a photographer along with her. And then she realised she could do the photography herself. She she was a good photographer, not a great photographer, but she bought a camera, and I fell in love with this camera because I, I studied science. I was very good at science at school. I did a science degree in the end, and um, and I just sort of loved the. Uh, uh, I just took to photography because it was just, a, I built a little dark room in my uh, spare loo at home and uh, started shooting lots of film and developing it and going off on, on uh, shoots with my mother and taking pictures and then having them published actually in the newspapers, um, which was very, very exciting. And so I carried on uh, with my education. I went to a very academic school, went to Westminster, uh, which was actually very arty and academic. Um, it was a it was a good time and then uh, I thought I'd do a science degree and biology seemed like the most interesting science degree because it's such a mixture between art and science and very observational and you look at animals and draw them and dissect things it's got kind of a very interesting degree to do but my, my passion was I, the uh, the photography had really in, ignited in me in my early teens and so I thought being a fashion photographer or portrait photographer uh, was a thing for me so I did. Um, lots of photography at university which i really enjoyed and then from local magazines and then um, it was still it's so hard to believe anyone listening to this who's who's younger than us probably I hope lots of people listening to this who are younger than us um they just can't really imagine how important a beautiful photograph was because now there's the ability to take a picture on your phone is just so easy uh, and and the phones are actually incredible they process it all for you but just taking a really great color picture in focus beautiful quality was something in itself so you got paid quite a lot of money for it um so it was a real thing to do to be a um to be a fashion photographer so i ended up assisting for these um photographers and um uh yeah, it's a really really great time it was the sort of end of the superhero uh superhero <laughs> supermodel um era and uh yeah it was just uh, it was it was a cool thing to be a photographer and you got to travel around and work for different magazines and uh it was really yeah really good times
0: and you were still a young guy at this oh uh,
1: yeah yeah age. i was just in my yeah, yeah i was just in my um in my early 20s yeah i was living the dream i saw that film blow up i don't think you've ever seen it that 60s film and there was it was be- based on um Kind of young David Bailey in uh, in the East End, living driving around in a convertible Bentley with a telephone in, and having this fantastic studio with models around, and just having a great life. So I kind of saw that when I was kind of, uh, e- easily influenced in my late teens. I thought well, that's the life for me, and then slowly kind of worked worked towards that. Got myself a studio in Camden, and um, and I got myself a convertible TR4 at the time. Um, but yeah, I kind of let, uh, lived that dream, and I got paid and I got paid for it as well. And I uh, worked as an assistant. So I kind of uh, You learn the trade of being a photographer Um, i mean that's all just just vanished so quickly when mobile phones came in Uh, but as i was saying it was a real thing being able to take uh, color pictures which were uh, beautifully composed and i had a color dark room in my studio so i'd shoot fashion all day get the film developed at these 24-hour labs it was a real scene around london everyone would be uh, meeting up, um, waiting for their film to, to see if their day's shoot was uh, was a success, and then I had a color darkroom in my studio, so then I'd print up pictures because I was so enthusiastic about seeing these beautiful pictures I'd um, taken. So I'd print uh, until about sort of two or three in the morning, and then I'd deliver them on my bicycle. I was always cycled around London to the magazines. I learned a sort of good trick then. What you do is you give a, give your prints and the contact sheets to the. Uh, Art director, and you'd look at their face, not at the pictures, because you're you normally sort of are drawn down to the picture. You look at their faces. You're giving them their the pictures, and you can instantly tell whether they liked the shoot or not, uh, or whether you were going to get another job. So it was, um, yeah. So that was my life, um, uh, yeah. In the uh, in the sort of uh, noughties, nineties, uh, nineties and noughties,
0: uh, yeah, it's great fun. So where did you go from there?
1: Um, yeah. So so then, I had a whole love of colour. And um, um, I used a special colour film and everything. Um, and I quite like colourful clothes. Um, so I was um, looking for other, other uh, colour work to do. And um, I, got, I got married. I, I married the love of my life, this girl at university, who I'd first met in the first kind of uh, week. And had uh, been chasing her for a long time. Anyway, she agreed to marry me and um i cut my honeymoon short we went on honeymoon to ireland cut my honeymoon short by a couple of days because i had to shoot in la at the time um which didn't go down very well <laughs> um, so i um and then um uh yeah then we, then we uh, came back we were living in my photographic studio at the time uh and then we had a little baby i built a little um uh set a room set i called it the womb um, and rather than the room uh, inside inside the photographic studio where the little baby um, was, and then um, and then I had another sheet to um, to. Uh... Rio, I was going off doing fashion and beauty in, um, in Rio for a magazine every March. And then this bus would turn up with all these sort of models and stylists and makeup artists and driving off to the airport. And my wife would say, at least you could pretend not to smile as you say goodbye. <laughs> so see, see you in four weeks. <laughs> so I could tell that, that the, the, the life I'd created over sort of about uh, 10 years was not going to be uh, uh, conducive to, uh, to marriage. Uh, so I was looking for some work in London. And um, I'd always had the love of clothes because I'd been making myself kind of rave clothes and uh, sewing very badly. So the idea of actually going to a, to a good tailor was just something which I really, really aspired to. And I was, I was quite kind of intimidated by the idea of going to, going to a tailor. But I was given the job actually um, to photograph the new and the old scene of Savile Row. Um, I was on a, working for a magazine. And I photographed uh, Henry Poole, which is the granddaddy of uh, of Savile Row, being there for two hundred years. And Carlo Brandelli, who was the new creative director of Kilgore, which sadly is I the think they've gone bust now. Um, and he was cutting a very modern, sleek um, suit, and Henry Poole were cutting a really classic, classic suit. Um, anyway, I was uh, I was photographing portraits of these uh, of these characters, and. Um, I was in uh, walking down Savile road on my camera bags and i bumped into um, I bumped into Andrew Bolton, who is a curator at the Met um, in uh, in New York, uh, who I knew through another friend, just a vague acquaintance and then he bumped into uh, Ander Rowland, who owns his Taylor anderson and Shepherd. and um, and um she was um, asking him if she if she knew a tailor, if she knew a photographer because she had um, inherited the uh, Taylor Anderson and Shepherd, but she her background was in marketing um for dior i think uh, and she was sort of wanting to really get savile rose really struggling this is the time when everyone was going to big designers and tailoring was off the radar for most people so um she was very very clever in helping to galvanize all the tailors in savile rose they helped form this organization called savile Row Bespoke, which is all the tailors getting together saying how great tailoring was and um laying down the kind of uh, um uh, what's the word? Not, not the 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 what makes a a, um, a tailored garment so special? So sort of right. saying this this is a Savile Row garment because lots of people were copying Savile Row tailors and they they were just sort of not really uh, you know, they were just sort of ersatz tailors um, and none of the tailors in Savile Row had a website they were all just sort of totally old school. Um, yeah. So um, so she uh, asked me uh, well I was introduced literally just in this sort of five minute meeting um, um, by this. Um, uh, Andrew, saying, oh, and, uh, Anthony's a photographer. So I just went round and I was wearing something um, in um, something very colourful. I can't quite remember. I think it was some plus fours because <laughs> I was on my bicycle. Um, and she said, I said, what do you need? And she said, well, I need you to photograph every single tailor, all the archives of Savile Row um, so for this uh idea of cataloguing everything to do with Savile Row and for marketing purposes and I just thought wow this is totally amazing it's absolutely my dream job it ticked all the boxes because I'd have work in London rather than uh, you know traveling around the world and I could have um, carte blanche to sort of rummage around all the archives of all the tailors um, mm. on Savile Row so it was literally just just this sort of dream moment come to it and to it. it totally changed my life really
0: I can imagine yes uh, I mean, what two two hundred and fifty years of history for you to rummage through? There must be unimaginable treasures there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was because I kind of um, had a love of fashion and, and clothes, and as you were mentioning, there was an inter- interesting time when I was sort of growing up with the demise of the tailored suits, the sort of demise of the of the mods who were always wearing their tailored suits, and the rise of um, of um, fast fashion and designer clothes sort of the vivian westwoods and paul smiths and people who were then starting to dominate and then there was also at the end of the kind of there was a period everyone was raving in bright bright floral clothes which was was really really good fun um all that kind of acid house um era which was just um a whole little microcosm in itself people wearing really bright neon crazy crazy clothes and then after that there was a kind of people wondering what to wear um there was a whole scene in the uh, east end of London. There was an a, a, um, uh, electro swing scene, which I was part of, uh, which was really good fun.
0: It must have been pretty <laughs> short-lived.
1: Uh, but, you know, it's, it's still sort of going on. One of my friends, uh, Ian Bruce, was sort of the leader of it, but it was mixing up swing music, 20s music, with hip-hop. Um, you're not familiar with it?
0: I I think I've heard the expression, but it sounds like one of these. I mean, nowadays you have TikTok trends that last basically two weeks. (laughs) But uh, electro swing, I mean, there's electro clash. There's uh, any number of little sort of subcultures, isn't there?
1: Yeah, yeah. Electro swing was really, really good. It was a lot as as with so much music, um, it went hand in hand with fashion. Um, but that was a really interesting thing about the electro the swing the era. Was it was a mixture between um, sort of twenties fashion and people wearing, you know, all that kind of top hat. Um, what's that? Putting on the Ritz kind of. Um, yeah. I can't remember the lyrics. Your cane and your top hat and your bowler and your yeah. spats and your white tie. And, I'm sort of waiting for of.
0: where the hip hop comes into this. <laughs> yeah, was,
1: the hip hop the was a sort of beat which they they sort of um, uh, mi- uh, mixed to it. So it was kind of essentially the kind of lyrics of. Um, well, actually, uh, my friend Ian. Uh, was very clever. He formed a band called the Correspondents and and uh, wrote really great songs about the changing landscape of London uh, in terms of um, modernization. And then people sort of harking back to uh, the how great menswear clothes were. It was it was um, it was a really interesting time of just just people rediscovering um, old old clothes, but but not wanting to dress up in an old fashioned way. So sort of combining them with. Um, with modern, modern kind of ideas and looks. I mean, I guess that's what designers, I, all the designers I loved um, always I do, I'm a great fan of Vivian Westwood, but she was um, so clever uh, with her historical knowledge. So for the new romantics, which you mentioned, the pirates collection, there'd yeah. be all these kind of things that would literally look like pirates of the Caribbean from the um, you know the great days when we were buccaneer pirates around the world in the sort of 17th, 17th 18th centuries. Um, and uh, and georgian times which they everyone loved dressing up uh, so combining all that with with modern ideas and with the fact that it didn't cost you very much to buy an old tweed suit in a vintage shop and then kind of add bits onto it and and uh, dress up so there was that that background was happening at the um, at the time and then i was given this uh this um job to work as a photographer uh and look at the archives on on savile row but i was thinking as at the time um what I need to do is kind of modernize all this is just, just my own personal look because um, I like the whole floro raving kind of just the joie de vivre the fun of clothes I think that's one thing that people don't really talk enough about you get so many serious menswear bloggers and people talking about oh form and function of menswear which I actually love that's kind of one of the and the of the rules, pre- the rules yeah the rules it's always about the rules you know you can wear um this this shirt collar cutaway collar with a certain tie or a fat tie or a thin tie of half winds and dot or um cufflinks on double cuffs I, all that i mean i love the rules because and if no we, you know to in town yeah yeah yes yeah, so no brand in town exactly <laughs> um yeah there's so many of them not much tweed in town either because tweed is a sort of country um country yeah. fabric um but um the great thing about rules once you know them is you can break them that was the uh, that's the whole kind of thing so uh, so that's what i was en- enjoying at um that time that's that was that kind of time where people were experimenting a lot with uh with tailoring and uh and color um but that that led me to sort of it, oh I guess, I guess it's like being a sort of addict isn't it you want a stronger and stronger dose of 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 kind of fashion and color and tailoring <laughs> and um and I started looking at things. I bought this fabulous book, uh, a historical book. But there's, there was one source book by he's uh, called Ian Peacock, and it's historically accurate. Um, I should have a copy here. I've got a copy of my shop. Um, it's a historically accurate book of line drawings, and all the colours um, are, are well well charted. And it's a history of menswear from of, you know from uh, ancient um, kings, where the sleeves was were not properly constructed; they were sewn on. Uh, to, uh, Elizabethan doublet and hose, and then all all the way through the whole history of menswear. And I had this book, and I was looking at it, going, "Oh my god, the detail of this uh, of this coat from 1740 was is amazing." And the color of the tweeds people were wearing in 1860 were incredible. If only I could kind of combine all this. And then all of a sudden, I was I was given the capability for this. So I was I was. Um, getting paid in tailoring for this job in Savile Row. So I was photographing the archives, learning more and more about how much fun men used to have with colour and tweed, um, and, and being able to um, then have something made. So I was, I was always cycling around and, uh, um, in my father's old tweed jacket, which was a sort of uh, Harris tweed, a sort of brownie colour one. And I thought, what I really need is a tweed, that's because tweed is the traditional way that men wear colour, a tweed to wear in town um which is sort of fashion so sort of brightly colored and really really sort of full of joie de vivre which was the, that uh thing i desired most is just to is to amuse myself with with fashion um and um and be able to have a sort of sort of cut that worked well for uh cycling around and being a photographer and carrying bags and things, but also looked good. So I was looking at all these archives, and they had menswear was all about form and function. Tweed was all about um, sportswear, basically, um, and colour. So the whole thing formed together. So then I went to a tailor. Actually, the first tailor I went to was a fabulous tailor called Russell, um, who was off Savile Road because I was. Just uh, wasn't quite enough brownie points to actually afford free Savile road suits by then. So I had to pay it in my own pocket. And he was very reasonable price. And um and I had a cycling suit made. Um, and I looked at all the fabrics and the and the uh and the choice of fabrics in his tailoring shops were pretty, pretty boring. So I ended up going for a purple corduroy, which was the which was uh which wow. is <laughs> Well, not bright purple. It's burgundy, I think. But it looked quite good in town. It was kind of easy colour to wear, and it was a colour, and you could match other colour shirts and jumpers and things with it. Um, but my my head was sort of clicking around, thinking, "Oh, I'm just then what I need is th- this amazing fabric, and then it will complete the whole picture of what I'm trying to create." As I say for my for myself, um, I had my um, my photography studio in in Camden, and um, I was trying to do more work in London. And I thought, what I need to do is work with someone creative. As a stylist because it was all about teamwork being a photographer having great models stylists um hair, hair and makeup etc so i thought if i go to the um, degree shows i'll find a sort of student um with some um, interesting ideas so someone, i went around someone
0: young to exploit yeah
1: absolutely <laughs> yes <laughs> um actually funny enough yeah coming to the story poor old kirsty was exploited i think in her degree show um by a big big brand um so um so i went to the royal college of art the um, degree show and i saw this fantastic fridge and it was full of amazing um it was a bit like um wizard of oz you know the first color film had all these it had the pair of sequined shoes and fabrics coming out of it and the whole thing was uh, was bonkers and colorful and fun and um and it was the work of kirsty mcdougall who was uh was a weaver and it was her final show and she had these amazing fabrics and i suddenly thought oh my god where are these how do i get hold of these fabrics they're amazing and um, spoke to Kirsty and said, we should do a shoot together. So we actually did a little fun fashion test shoot with all the bright colors and things. And then I was speaking to her saying, where can I get some of these amazing fabrics you're producing? And uh, she said, well, we can look into um, into some mills and see if we can get some woven. So I said, oh, yes, please, please, please. So she had a, well, she studied weaving at the Royal College um, she did some research and found a commissioned weaver up in the Scottish borders a tweed weaver who was happy to weave a very small piece a piece pieces typically sixty meters um, and um, and found a yarn dye who could dye um, colors that I wanted so, so she said well we I can arrange I can arrange this and she was just at the uh, finishing her degree and she had these designs she would already done which I loved they had some sort of chevron marks that looked a little bit like a tire had run over them and they were great great colors and I was thinking um, this is be really great to get a colourful urban cycling outfit that that it would be a real kind of um enjoyable statement piece it would have form and function which I love but also just a whole joy of dressing up but also look kind of not like I'd sort of stepped out of a rave in the middle of the night just, so there was a whole there was a whole mixture of things that I was trying to put together and then have some historical kind of proper menswear kind of rules, you know, as you were saying, there's like a proper piece of menswear cup from a different era, which I could combine, because I'd seen that through the New Romantics and through Westwood and other things, how there was such a depth to menswear as the history of menswear. Anyway, to cut a uh, long story thought, um, we um, ended up having a piece of fabric woven um, to, to Kirsty's design, to the colours I liked, and. Um, Uh, And it was 60 meters and I only needed six for myself for this amazing suit I had made. Um, So I had this great idea. I said to Kirstie, I've got this great idea. We can sell the rest of the fabric and then it will pay all the bills for, for you and everything else and then we can weave more of it. And uh, so she said, oh, "Okay, well, it's probably a good idea." She wasn't overly convinced, but uh, I said, "We've got to set up a brand, a brand name for this for this company." Um, and uh, so we had all these ideas. We sat in her kitchen, and she was going, "On the crest of a weave, was a, was was one of her. <laughs> her ideas <laughs> anyway I, we came up with dashing tweeds because it was just it was what it was uh, dashing you know as in um, a man looking dashing and well-dressed and i was always whizzing around on my bicycle so that's sort of dashing boxes and forward looking uh, perfect and, name yeah i thought it's a perfect name um and then i said to Kirsty, "I oh, well this is you know she's great we've got a name um i'm gonna sell this fabric we should set up a little studio together And she was not not entirely convinced, but she said, OK, yes. Well, I said, what do you need? She said, I need a loom, um, because she'd left college. And I said, let's buy a loom. And she said, OK, I want an arm loom, which was the finest Swiss design loom. So I said, great. So I wrote to Switzerland, to the arm factory, which I think now, now doesn't make them anymore, and got the finest arm loom. Uh, I was earning quite good money as a photographer then, so I, I thought it was it wasn't actually very expensive. Um, and um, I said to Kirsty, "Well, let's just put it in your front room, and you can start weaving me more more fabrics." <laughs> <laughs> and I got this idea because. Um, I had my first suit made. My wife said, you've now got responsibilities, you're a dad. You can't go cycling around London without wearing a high-vis vest with reflective threads in it. And I said, there's no way oh. I'm going to ruin my look with this uh, high-vis vest. But I thought, hang on, if I could combine some high-vis yarns in the weaving, um, that, would, that would be really brilliant. Um, so I spoke to Kirsty and said, do you think we can get some high-vis yarns and try and weave them in? Um, you know, Kirsty's fantastic. She's always up for experimentation. She's a brilliant designer. Um, so anyway, I'll give it a go. So we found I wrote to 3M, which is a really interesting company. Um, and they're very helpful, just with a small you know, one-off person saying, can I have some of your special reflective yarn? And they sent me a little cone. And we wove it in. And then said, anyway, it seems to work. Let's see how it works in, uh, with the mills. And then we were so lucky. We had this um, weaver called Robbie when uh, well, he's still there. He's amazing. Um, Robbie Trussler up in the up in the weavers uh, in the borders and um, and he was up for giving these things a go and it was a complete pain trying to weave with this reflective yarn but he got it to work and we produced this reflective tweed uh, which was which was really amazing and then by that time I would earned enough uh, brownie points through my work in Savile Row and had a suit uh, tailored by uh, Edward Sexton actually who was oh. one of the most amazing tailors actually he wasn't quite on Savile Row but he was around there. Um, He's now back in Savile Row, but he's one of the most famous tailors um, in Savile Row for working with Tommy Nutter. For that was when tailoring and fashion and cool were absolutely at its zenith. And, and pop and, music, and pop music, yeah, yeah. And as you know, the color, um, Abbey Road album cover—they're walking across the, the zebra crossing, and uh, I think I think Paul and um, John are both wearing Sexton suits. Um, Anyway, and Mick Jagger got married in an Edward Sexton suit. So I mean, I to, for my through my photography, photographing things and thing have an Edward Sexton suit tailored in this idea, in this reflective, I call it the raver tweed, going back to my ideas of raving and bright colours and, and everything. everything. Um, uh, so yeah, so that was that was that was the beginning. But I still had the problem of actually having to sell some of the actual um, some of the actual fabric. Um, so um, I spoke to all my friends because I had good fashion contacts at the time, and I had this friend called Kimbara Balfour uh who uh she was kind of styling and modeling for me uh for this quintessential magazine which was really good fun it was this lifestyle magazine for the rich and famous set up by ben elliott and i had so much fun i had this jobs um clubbing around the world with freddie windsor and flying off to moscow and beirut going clubbing and it was really really good fun anyway she was um she was working for a very very early um online magazine um pod they called daily candy and she uh she said, um, okay, I'm going to write about you. It's a really big deal. Um, you've got to be ready. When the phone rings and you say you've got this special tweed, which you're selling, you'd be, better be prepared. So I said, great. Thank you very much for writing about me. It's really great. Um, and, um, and, of course, nothing happened at all. So kind of, I was, literally, I, saw, I saw it pop up and thought, my, like, the phone's going to never stop ringing. But I was on holiday um, about three weeks afterwards. And, um, and I got a call from New York, or not from New York, from Boston, And um, the fabric development person on Converse had seen the article and said, I love what you're doing modernizing tweed and combining reflective yarns and uh, taking some of the colors of London and making it into an urban tweed, which is our ideas. Can we collaborate with you? And I said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely." I was going to (laughs) blow it away. So post me some samples. I posted everything we had. We had about four designs. Um, and she said, "This is great." I've spoken to my boss. We want to cons- come and see your headquarters. Well, the headquarters was just uh, a little loom in Kirsty's front room in Dalston, Um, and um, and me dressing up in my dressing room at home. Um, and anyway, sure enough, they flew over, and uh, I think they were quite they were quite amused by this to how small and simple we were. And then we drove up to uh, the mills in Scotland, which are proper production mills. You know, they've got uh, uh, big looms uh, and. Um, they had to kind of okay everything because uh the uh the rules uh, i mean, it was owned by nike i think it's now owned by nike but the rules of kind of slave labor and uh, using the right materials and the right kind of yarns and mm. wools so they had to adhere to this they were quite stringent she even went to sort of there was a girly poster on the on the wall of a kind of page three girl and uh, he was saying is this strictly necessary for the uh, uh for for the factory and uh, the person said, "Oh yes, it's for the uh, it's for the welfare of all the weavers. It, it <laughs> keeps them it, keep, it keeps them amused." Um, anyway, long and short of it was that they produced um, a co branded range with thirty thousand pairs of of uh, converse trainers with dashing trees written on them, uh, which my friends were then totally amazed by. Uh, just sort of, it was literally like going from naught to sixty in in just no no time
0: at all. Just suddenly,
1: I was a it was a real kind of. Uh, Stroke of luck, luck really. Yeah. Um, have
0: you ever stopped to think about how uncannily similar that story is to how when Nike saved saved Harris Tweed when they called up um, John uh,
1: John Mackay. Yeah, I went to go and see right. him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that story, that's that's such a good story, that isn't it? Have you have you met him? No, I haven't. No, uh, you must go and see him. He's he's an absolute legend. Um, as part of my Savile Row work, we went to go and look at the Harris Tweed uh, weavers, and we go went to uh, meet him and. I'm not going to bother doing Scottish accents because I'm very bad at accents. Um, but the story is, is um, his wife. It was just him and his wife, and they had this little crofting shed. And the wife got a call from the Americans and said, "We wanted. They wanted uh, 10,000 meters of of Harris Tweed." And uh, and he shouted his husband, said, "John, we, we, Donald, John, we. we uh, the Americans want 10,000 meters of tweed." And he said, "Oh my God, I can't believe it. It must be totally wrong. Something's obviously, obviously wrong." I this is completely nuts. And sure enough, the phone rang um, about half an hour later and uh, and they said, I'm oh, sorry, we've made a mistake. And uh, the wife um, uh, shouted, oh, they've made a mistake. So I thought they made a mistake. They need 100,000 meters of, of, <laughs> <laughs> um, of Harris tree. So that's the story, as you know. And yeah. then, uh, yeah, yeah. And then but they, how, uh, how
0: strange they should come to you and it sort of repeats itself. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's 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 the general. I mean, just generally speaking to you about uh, menswear, the zeitgeist is such an important thing, isn't mm-hmm. it? In uh, in in menswear, and I think I've, that's what I um, generally speaking, I just uh, like to tap in, keep my awareness open, listening to you know great uh, great posts like your one um, and stories, and and see what the vibe is at the moment. So that was a very much a, an example of of a zeitgeist uh, thing.
0: So thirty thousand pairs of Converse hit the streets what happened next
1: oh, so i was i i mean in a way it's sort of uh, uh, you know a great success like that is a mixed blessing because then you're totally convinced that uh, that um, you um you're going to be a massive success uh, and it happens so often in fashion you know you get a really great instant success and then and then everything go the bubble bursts you know that's a typical oh. kind of fashion fashion story um but um so yeah, so I stocked my room up uh, downstairs with trainers to sell to my friends and uh, and started a website and, um, and everything. And then I thought, well, I've got this fabric and uh, we're working with different tailors. But the whole thing about fabric is that people have to be able to sort of touch and feel it. What I really need is a, is a shop. Um, and I've got all my friends in Savile Row, uh, who I'm working with, because I've become very friendly with all the tailors. Because I've done lots of work for them, I'd shot a book which was published by Thames and Hudson uh, by that time, and uh, I could literally had something made by every tailor in Savile Row by about by that point, which was uh, which is really really amazing. <laughs> I thought, what I need to do is be, be be near my friends in Savile Row, um, and um, and then supply them fabrics because the the, the whole oh. buzz was was starting. And there was a little hairdresser which had just um, gone bust in Sackville Street. Uh, just around the corner i mean savile Row is, uh, is an area which used to have thousands of tailors in a really large area headon street and sackville street and clifford street and um burlington street it was a very very big area of tailors it sort of shrunk a bit when i was because that's the whole thing was i was trying to save the table tailors, were trying to cling on and save but anyway i moved to a little st- street uh, we still had a few tailors in, and uh, opened a tiny little shop. The rents, as you can imagine, this is being the most the centre of the West End of London, uh, astronomically expensive. And my optimism at forecasting how much fabric I could sell to pay the,
0: <laughs> the rent was,
1: <laughs> uh, was quite tremendous as well. Anyway, I signed a five year lease on this on this little shop, and then um, put on my uh, fabrics. And by that time, Kirsty was saying, "Guy, we can't base a whole business on you just." Um, uh, making what you want on a, on a whim, uh, we've, there needs to be some sort of organisation to this whole uh, this whole thing. And out of the blue, this amazing girl Holly just appeared. Um, she had studied weave at uh, Chelsea. And had read about us because i was quite good at getting the publicity at that time getting my friends to to write about me and things um and then obviously the product i was making our fabulously colorful fun tweets were catching people's imagination and and people were really enjoying it so holly came on board and she's incredible at organization so she started sort of bashing there was kirsty holly and i bashing this tweeds company into some sort of shape and saying we need need some organization here it's uh, it's not going to be based entirely on your whims guy um, we, <laughs> so we started then doing seasonal collections and we went to um, uh, fabric shows went to Milan unica uh, and uh, do you ever go to pretty womo the men'swear shows I never have been but I've I'd like to go just once okay. oh yeah you should definitely you should definitely go it's uh, it's it's uh it's good for as we were saying about looking at the zeitgeist of what where menswear's going and everyone dressing up and having uh, having fun you would uh, you'd be a bit of a star there i imagine uh, i
0: can't imagine so. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh
1: it's all different styles uh, everything everything goes um so we started doing a bit bit more of that and then i had the shop but to be honest um no one came for the first two years because um it was uh, yeah it was it was uh i, I had no clue about how much marketing you need to need to uh uh do to get people to come into a shop because all your yeah. friends come for a first you know what it's like you support your friends when you go to, when if they're in a play or something or they're broadcasting you listen to it for five minutes and go yeah you were great and then go and do something you really want to do and uh, uh so so it was it was a bit like that and then of course not all my friends like like dressing up they're only um uh, only, a f- only a few of them who did. Um, so then I realized that you'd have to do like a thousand times more marketing um, for a brand and be global to, uh, to succeed. So that's when the, sort of, the journey of uh, dashing began in earnest, really.
0: So uh, what year are we talking now? Uh, so this was,
1: um, So I've now had my second shop, which is much, much better for five years. And I had that other shop. Um, that was 10 years ago. Okay. Um, so I started working about 15, 16 years ago, uh, photographing for uh, the tailors in Savile Row. Um, And that was a really interesting time, because it was, and uh, again, there's now a massive uh, rise in in menswear blog posts, and and people are really rediscovering the joys of menswear, and also discovering the joys of how tailoring is so comfortable to wear, and how um, my great story, I think, which I'm really keen on promoting, is individuality and telling people that the whole thing about going to a tailor is you are, this is one thing I love sort of telling people, you hear the word bespoke all the time you're saying this is bespoke see? this is bespoke bespoke it's always banded around uh, what you never really hear is the is the is the um verb bespeak someone bespeaking to their tailor what they want so i'm really keen on sort of encouraging people oh. to bespeak what they want and that's kind of one of the essences of dashing tweeds is giving men more variety of of color and interesting fabrics but also encouraging them to bespeak to their tailor or a local there's always a kind of little greek man well, there is in london uh under a little arch uh, archway um well actually they're sort of slightly slightly dying off but they're now young fashion students who are filling up their place setting up little ateliers uh, on little archways and uh, making things and you have to go to them and bespeak speak something interesting uh that's what i'm really encouraging people
0: to do do you find people actually know what to ask for
1: uh well that's that's exactly the uh, thing so in the old days there was a um, there was a magazine. Um, Called uh, Taylor and Cutter, and there were actually lots of other fashion magazines. There was one, um, uh, even <laughs> older Squire magazines had um, lots of uh, interesting um, uh, line drawings. There they, they were these magazines, and they were mostly most of the money came from ta- from uh, not from tailors, from cloth producers, because there were so many people producing interesting fabrics, and um, and the magazines would have the latest drawing of what's in fashion, because mens- menswear's Always changing. People sometimes say, "Am I interested in tailoring or fashion?" They don't realise how connected menswear and um, tailoring and fashion are. So these these magazines would have the latest uh, cut. Wide leg trousers are in. Um, a flare line in the 50s or a 60s high buttoning sort of pierre Cardin look and it was and it had very very clear drawings you know you've you've all seen those beautiful menswear drawings lovely clear pencil drawings um which could be taken to tailors and tailors could see exactly the detail that could be could be made so so you had all this armory all these sort of magazines um like tailor and cutter which is sort of more aimed at the tailor and cutter but uh, your puncher sitting in his uh, city office could also buy a copy, and then other, other fashion magazines with the line drawings. Um, and they would uh, see what the latest fashion was, very skinny trousers and wide lapels, let's say. And they would say, this is the latest fashion. And the tailor would say, oh, very good, sir. Is this indeed the latest fashion? Uh, and, and you would say, yes, this is the latest fashion. Like, I want you to tailor it for me. I'm bespeaking you to tailor me some incredibly wide lapels and narrow trousers. Uh, and they'd go, very good, sir. And they'd look at the pictures and go, I, I can do that, because the drawings were so clear. Um, and then you would come out of the, uh, the tailor with your fantastic new suit, and all your friends would go, by Jove, that's a very, very sort of natty suit you've got there. I'm going to go to my tailor, and uh, you're obviously a very fashionable young man, and ask him for the same thing. And that was how fashion men's, fashion in menswear kind of evolved, uh, which I find sort of so interesting, because as soon as the... Um, uh, ready to wear came in and then the rise of the of the designer then the fashion uh, was taken away from the individual uh, they were no longer in charge of, of bespeaking the latest fashion they were they were told only their designer is the person the god you know can tell you what to wear um, Armani can make you wear huge oversized floppy outfits uh, in gray and you'd look great even though they didn't look great if they didn't really fit very well I mean that's even clever if they don't fit very well if you make oversized and it doesn't matter if it's one size over or two right. sizes over it's oversized so it's sort of genius of the designers and then it's sort of in, the emasculation of of the average man on the street as being their own, their own designer. And that was what was happening in the kind of, um, eighties, nineties, uh, early two thousands. But now actually, especially actually listening to your, your excellent podcast and other things, people are really regaining control of clothes for themselves. And that's, I really think dashing tweeds is very much integral to, uh, to, to, to that.
0: That must've been the point when fashion accelerated as well, because when it was sort of by drawings and word of mouth and it, fashion must have sort of changed quite slowly because the information wasn't disseminated that quickly.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it was there was a natural speed to the whole thing. I mean, if you go back to when soldiers were sort of hanging out in pall mall in their clubs, they were getting uniforms made. Funny enough, a lot of uniforms. All the tailors in Savile Row have got a military background because obviously their biggest customers were making were soldiers. Um, but they would buy a commission into the... Hussars, and then they would go to their tailor and say, "I want more frogging than my than my friend uh, on their uniform." So the uniforms weren't absolutely dead uniform; they could add a bit more on. And then the other friend would come back, and they would go to their tailor and add some more on. So there was, a, there was a natural time. I mean, it, it takes a tailor typically—I um, oh, don't know—a couple of months or something, three months or something—to to to. Um, to to tailor you something fantastic all handmade and then your friends would have to take notice of it so I don't know maybe every six months there would be uh, a year there would be a, a slow trend to to um to changing the, the width of your trousers or adding f- extra frogging onto your outfits or or whatever whatever the tr- trends was but there was a natural pace of it all and then you're totally right if if you're a designer and you've got a uh, a high street shop And you want to sell clothes quickly all you do is you just dictate because you are the god designer um, that this is no longer fashionable this new look is fashionable um so we're going to Encouraged the, the, hip, the hip youth to, uh, to to get a to get a new look, uh, and that maybe happened twice a year. And then someone said, well, "I can make more money. I can make it happen four times a year." And then someone said, "I can make it happen six times a year." I think Alexander McQueen um, ended up doing sixteen collections a year before you know the stress and everything was just yeah. totally totally bonkers. And now, of course, the really clever Chinese. Um, evil companies which are uh, is it Shine or something? They're producing yeah, collections Shein. every two week Sheen. Every two weeks?
0: I don't they, think they uh... even have a, a cycle on it. I think they just it's just continuous. It's just one endless open tap of new stuff
1: yeah 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 just new just new things and obviously people's concentration span scrolling has has just reduced to, to nanoseconds so, <laughs> so, and then you hear stories about obviously this is so far removed from what i'm trying to do but people um appearing on their social media in a dress uh, once and then thinking they've done that they want to not get another one so they press another button on but the chinese dress comes made of petrochemicals uh you know costing five pounds they wear it another time and you know it gets thrown in the bin adding plastics into the sea so yeah it's absolutely appalling the only good thing is is that um it's that's being everyone um is learning about that now so um
0: um hopefully at least people some people are learning others are still <laughs> very much uh mainlining the all the cheap good stuff um yeah in yeah um, well
1: it has, it's education isn't it that's what i was going saying about that this magazine which obviously uh, is no longer around there needs to be someone um, well, actually, now I guess magazines are having a hard time. I mean, that's why I stopped being a photographer, because all the magazines uh, vanished stop paying, paying yeah. you. Um, but obviously, there are other ways uh, through social media and, um, and blogs and everything of getting the information out. And I think going back to what I'm trying to do, individuality, people commissioning clothes, and you don't have to have that much money. Everyone's got a friend who's, a, uh, who's got a sewing machine. It's become quite trendy during lockdown to do sewing and buying a vintage piece. Or they actually have. You've got to go back quite a long way to get vintage pieces that actually can you can sew on because they're just the plastic stuff it just, it just rips yeah. and falls apart. Um, but then customising clothes, I think, is becoming uh, becoming quite uh, quite a big deal.
0: I'd like to loop back to the moment where you started bringing your own fancy new ravy tweeds to Savile Row, presenting them to the traditional cutters that mm-hmm. were probably. Decades older than you and used to their traditional cloths. I mean, what sort of response did you get?
1: Well, that's just interesting you say that they're decades older than me because they were so many decades older. They were remembering times when there was just so much more choice. So there was. Um, uh i think wayne shields was a uh, a we a um cloth uh, making company and if you look at the, some of the stuff from the 70s they were really psychedelic so and there was a brand like mr fish who made um, famously made mick jaggers dress that he wore in in um, hyde park and really colorful ties so when there were the older ones uh, there was a brilliant t- uh tailor called alan bennett at Davison sons he was just so cool he'd trained since he was 16 at huntsman's and then took over Davison sons yeah. and he was such a sort of hip uh hipster i mean even even when he was retiring he's just so cool and he made lots of things for me um but he uh, he they saw the kind of ravey tweeds i was doing these sort of colorful ones and reflective ones and um, and they were saying things oh i haven't seen things th- things things like this since the 60s or 70s so there were there was a whole kind of uh, nod to things coming back and then the other people who who were the young tailors who sort of <laughs> stuck in all the grays and blues and everything they were um um they were just um uh Uh, you know slightly shocked by the uh, the fabric but yeah ultimately the great thing is is the surprise wasn't as much as you the tradition of savile row uh uh is about doing interesting things for the customer so so that they weren't uh as conservative as you may may imagine them to be
0: that's an interesting thing there because uh, older people often say to younger people that uh, oh your hot fancy new thing Ain't nothing new. We've seen that before, and that's just what you experienced there, where the old guys you expected to be really shocked by your incredibly splendid, newfangled tweeds had sort of, oh yeah, we've seen that before. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, no, I think. I mean, that's that's a great thing about menswear, um, well, especially menswear. I think because it just it does ultimately, um, you know, I, we've only got two arms and two legs, uh, and there's a there's a sort of finite number of ways which cloth can cover cover your body so things have yeah. have been have been done before and if you wait long enough then it does all it does all come round um, but that's why I'm encouraging people now to actually that's why I think they learning about the history of men'swear is so important because it actually frees you up to to being even more creative because you can think because a lot of people are hampered especially in men'swear about what's correct and what's the style but everything's everything's uh, dissolved now it's um um, there's no, I mean, I uh, bemoan the fact that you go to the city and people aren't wearing bowler hats and striped suits and looking incredibly kind of smart um, in their in their city suits because that that structure of menswear is is so is, is such a great sort of backbone for having uh, uh, either doing the opposite, being creative, or knowing what the what the correct um, uh, attire is. Uh, so so now people, it's all dissolved. Uh, so people have to sort of relearn. Uh, the the rules, but I think if you go back to history, you can take your period of history and um, and then evolve from it. Because None of the Savile Row tailors, the sort of traditional ones, they the last time people were, as I say, going to Savile Row and bespeaking interesting things, saying, I'm going to cut the tails off my white tie and make a shorter tuxedo, a modern uh, dinner jacket, and then that's going to become the establishment look. Um, that was in the sort of 30s, 40s and 50s, so they have kind of slightly set that kind of idea of traditional menswear in aspect of tailoring and then you take off from there you go to the sort of designer menswear which is obviously already interesting amazing japanese cutters and um, clever designers all over the place but um it's connecting that dot i think which is really interesting between people uh style leaders going to their tailors commissioning something interesting um but having having vision of of how to sort of push a sort of society forward I was, it's 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 a hard thing now to talk about uh, men's uh, so, you know society and menswear because society for for a good thing has been has been sort of dissolved isn't it all the boundaries have been all all cut up, um, uh, which is which is good, um, but I think in terms of menswear it's nice to sort of go back somehow to, <laughs> um, or for some some style leaders to sort of start creating I think it is a happening. Um, Clothes which are made in proper material, especially wool. I mean, I haven't really talked about wool yet because wool is obviously the best we'll we'll of, um, of tweed. Um, but things that um, have a longevity and have a serious style and then ad- adapted by uh, a new establishment, whether it's kind of anything that's happening at the moment, non binary or uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know. You know, it's just, it's just a confusing world of what you can and can't do. Um, uh, and I think there needs to be in a way some some more more freedom to for people to actually dress smartly it sounds a bit odd but but if you work in a tech company then the young kids go oh you just you know you you look you can't wear a suit and a tie because you're too establishment we're 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 cool dudes we're about creativity we're like surf dudes man letting all hang out we're gonna wear our pajamas all day and look rubbish and then one uh, well, I my customers actually work for a big tech company. and so "I'm anti-establishment. I'm wearing a three-piece suit, tweed suit, to uh, to the. To, I'm going to shake up all these young kids." Yeah. Um, so, I mean,
0: what what is the the required clothing to be disruptive these days? I
1: mean, uh, exactly. <laughs> yes. yes I think a, a three-piece tweed suit. I think if you're working for a tech company. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, something strikes me, and you did base, touch upon it. Um, going back. To tailoring as menswear, it's not only about the designs uh, and the looks, but also, to me, a sense of quality of making things properly and making them to last.
1: Uh, absolutely, yes. I mean that uh, that that to me is the essence of uh, of proper clothes. And I've got a cupboard. I'm in my dressing room at the moment. I've got cupboards going back. I've saved some of my grandfather's finest um, clothes. Uh, in the very end of the cupboard and then I've got um, my sons are now shooting up this uh, 17 18 and um, uh, they have to wear some smart suits for school and um, and, um, and some formal occasions and I found my grandfather's old um, uh, dinner, dinner suit from the 1950s um, and um, and they were he, my sons are a little bit taller than he was, uh, but I looked inside them and there was plenty of um, of fabric left in all the seams. So I took it to the seamstress in my shop and said, "Can you just sort of lengthen the trousers two inches and let the jacket out a bit?" And uh, so then my sons said, like, absolutely fantastic. They were they were at a school concert. My uh, son's an amazing trombone player, and all the teachers go, "Wow, what a splendid suit!" Uh, and it was one of my grandfather's ones from the nineteen fifties. So what's that? Like 70, um, 70, years over seventy years old there. Uh, these ones so yeah the longevity of well-made clothes is is so so important
0: and the fact that you have seam allowances that allow you to take adjust them in and out and actually they can last longer than a pair of jeans or whatever you bought that last you just a month
1: absolutely i mean for your for your own waistline if um if uh, if actually it'd be quite interesting when you go to the sample road tailors you can see some history of of men so maybe they're introduced um by their father in their sort of twenties and they're skinny young men, and then and they get a little bit big, bigger, and you see the tailors staple on um, extra bits of material onto their patterns, and the patterns get bigger, and they're cutting a, cutting a suit, <laughs> and they're all these bits of sort of stapled on extra extra bits of um, uh, material on. So oh, yes, we're we're uh, we've got the chap's original pattern, but we're we're adding adding little bits onto it. But they always add a lot of seam allowance, so even the things cut with a skinnier pattern, the extra fabric inside can still be taken out, so they can still wear their their seat when they're putting on weight um they can have it let out as sort of one or two sizes uh, mm-hmm. and then um and then when they get to a certain point then they they get bigger and then the men tend to shrink again so they can then um put the fabric back in the seams uh, so yeah they're infinitely adaptable and that was thing I love looking at uh, armor in the in the Wallace collection and um you know, a museum around the corner for me and they had the very close fitting armor and um uh, for wearing on horses and when, when you have a well, that's made of metal, obviously. But even if you're having um, uh, wool, which is sort of like an armor, if it's a very close body fitting, uh, then you end up with a lot of uh, f- uh, movement of flexibility. i have always uh, uh, showing people in my shop, if you've got a very big armhole to a suit, which you're going into a ready-to-wear shop, and then you can put your arm in easily, um, you can't actually lift your arm in the air because the bottom of the uh, sleeve is then connected lower down the jacket, and it pulls the whole jacket up oh. in the air. Whereas when you have a really tight armhole, which all the sort of proper tailors cut, um, then you actually end up with more flexibility. A bit like you know, if you've got really close-fitting armour or close-fitting clothes. So there's a sort of slight, um, uh, uh, not irony, but you know, it's a paradox that the actual tighter fitting, closer body fitting tailored clothes are, the more comfortable they are and the actual more movement you get, which is something that young kids have to learn about because they're thinking that big baggy clothes um, are sort of easier. Uh, to, more comfortable to wear, but it's 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 not, not the case. So there are so many aspects to, uh, to tailored clothes that um, um, make longevity, comfort, ease of wear, ease of um, uh, form and function. You know, whatever you're doing in your life, uh, um, work. That's the uh, that's the that's the key to tailoring.
0: And of course, a lot of the fabrics are made to last a long time as well because they are super solid.
1: Uh, well, yeah, that's that's the the main thing I liked about tweed. This first tweed jacket, the Harris tweed jacket, I've got it in my cupboard still. I literally wore it every single day for three years. It just looks no different. It's sort of bulletproof, really. And it's, I uh, mean, wool is really the most amazing fabric, and everyone's gone back full circle now and realizing how brilliant wool wool is but uh, yeah just some of the uh, advantages of it it's can absorb 30% of its own weight in moisture and not feel wet it dries faster than cotton it's pretty much naturally waterproof anyway so even if you are in a storm most of the water because of the lanolin in the wool will roll off before it starts soaking in and then the amazing thing about wool is it doesn't um, smell so it absorbs smells the protein structure so even if you get really sweaty you're running around in a tweed suit the next day you just hang it up and it will smell kind of fresh unlike you know if you've got a nylon uh shirt or something it absolutely stinks um after a after a night dancing around in the pub uh well yeah wool um uh is yes it's a wonder a wonder fabric it keeps you warm um when it's cold it it keeps you um cool when it's hot uh yeah it's really it's really really clever
0: so you've got the new shop you've got your ravy tweeds where are things at now? What are you up
1: to? Oh, oh, the shop's going really well now. Yeah, this lockdown was obviously um, a, a bit a bit quiet. Um, I did some fun videos of uh, me in this very room here dressing up in my um, all my old historical clothes. But now in the shop, it's going brilliantly. We're doing two fabric collections a year. So in the winter, we work with really fabulous quality traditional tweeds. and We're doing a lot more uh, work with British wools. I had this fantastic trip to visit the British wool sorting office and learn more about the British wool Uh, which is so undervalued. So we're producing British wool tweeds um, for the winter, really great quality 26 ounce tweeds for coats and unlined turbo jackets. And and anything customers want, a customer just had a really cool bomber jacket made uh, by our in-house seamstress uh, to his design and just loves it in a really heavy tweed. But um, as I was saying, this wears really well, doesn't feel, I mean, it feels like there's a bit of weight to your actual outfit, but it wears uh, really easily. And then, in, so we're doing that for uh, a whole new collections every every um, uh, winter time. We're producing beautiful, colourful designs of um, really exploring colour and texture and working with British wools. And then in the summer, obviously, it's slightly different, diff- more difficult, having heavy heavy wools. But what we've been doing is working with finer merino wools, and we've been working with some lambs wool, um, and we've been mixing it with really funny. I found this um, fabulous uh, ravy yarn, which was it's little dots of colour, which is. I was it. oh, it's so good. I may have one of it here. Um, it's so cool. I mean, I, I, mean, I know it's going to be on radio, but you can describe some of these things. That say, uh, it's a, it's, we can't really, actually, you can't see the colour, but no, it's a pinstripe of floral dots on this. And then. Do they spell it's... something in Morse code? Oh, yeah, they probably do. <laughs> <laughs> Depends which section you want to take. This is a, uh, a beautiful green and pink check. Uh, this is a lovely summer tweed with pink and green and uh brown and this is a really creative this is our new summer collection it's almost like a walled garden it's got yellow and brown and um it's a lightweight what is it it's a uh uh well, it's got silk in it and it's it's nine ounces it's yeah it's really beautiful um so yeah the summer we're producing these lightweight worsted yarns but all, all with wool and all woven in the um wooden mills which we use up in the um in the borders but A yeah, worsted is a more finely twisted wool and then the traditional tweed is made of a woolen yarn, which is a, it's called woolen spun. The wool is carded rather than combed. So it's sort of technically, technically uh, um, the fibers stick out a bit more than a worsted. I'm not explaining this very well, but you can process wool <laughs> to be a worsted, which is a highly twisted, finely spun, softer, basically like a suiting uh, kind of um, fabric or a more woolly, tweedy fabric. We we use both of these types of yarns to produce interesting collections. Looking
0: at your designs there, I can see that your whimsies haven't been entirely reined in.
1: Um, no, but that's I mean, that is uh, one thing I'm, I'm passionate about as well. It's just have some bloody fun. I mean, you just see so many menswear people talking about what's correct, what's this, and uh, this old school thing and doing this. And you think, forget it all. Where's the actual joy of just dressing up? Like completely abandon any sense of, of what, you should be wearing, and just wear stuff that you want to wear. Walk down the street in a sunny day, wearing something colourful, you know, soaking up the admiring glances and and comments that you inevitably get when people say you look fabulous. I wish I was brave enough to wear what you're wearing. Is it's typically what people say to me, but you look great. Uh, it just makes you feel so so happy. And and that joie de vivre of actual dressing, which I think was you know seen in the New Romantics and people just wearing um, these sort of crazy pirate outfits, just. Out in the street, just for the fun. I haven't really seen it so much. Hopefully, it's coming back. But there was a whole era where you just had to be cool, and and you had to be correct, and you had to be this menswear or that menswear or this tailored look. Or you know, there's there's a lot to be said for just just enjoying the fun of 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 clothing.
0: Yeah, I, I'm totally with you on that. Totally, um, and I think menswear did have a sort of revival. In the sort of fashion scene around 2010, I suppose, when there was more interest in the sort of quality aspect and the traditional aspect, um, uh, yeah. a lot of blogs' uh, pity became a thing. Nick Worcester was a, a character on the scene, and then, I mean, as fashion things go, it sort of dwindled a bit, and it's then streetwear came and lots of Korean brands, and it's hard to know where it is right at the moment
1: well oh, i think that's i mean the korean thing is with the gamelan style i mean there was just a joy of dressing and then when people are it's interesting looking at um a lot of asian brands who are then actually going back to their own roots um now rather than there is a massive trend in uh chinese copying american preppy wear um and all that kind of uh, style but then other designers are just sort of going right back into i mean, I i know nothing about it to be honest but um traditional Japanese cuts or kimonos or really exploring just starting from a complete blank piece of paper um, and that's what I'm encouraging people to do although we're we're weaving this fabulous material uh, in, in wool I'm encouraging people to when they come to our shop we have a seamstress who works in-house we've got a made-to-measure tailor we've got a bespoke tailor so people come in and we have a few um, things they can buy in the shop so we have um, hats and scarves and we have loads of clothes to inspire people which uh, to be honest, they're mostly things I've had designed for myself <laughs> or for, for model sizes for doing shoots. Um, but people can sort of, if they're lucky enough, they can, they, they fit them, they can buy them. Otherwise, uh, we make everything to order because everyone wants something special made for them. Um, but it's to inspire people, um, all the, to all the possibilities of what you can, uh, of what you can have made and as you say there was the, i wear i like wearing short suits actually in the summer um and there then um, in um pity you do get all these men all dressing up and it goes in waves where people are just sort of having more fun or then feeling like they have to be uh, sort of correct or gentlemanly or but the great thing about menswear is it is it uh, moves with the zeitgeist uh, very easily uh, so it, it depends on what people's on what the whole mood of the of uh of the country is i mean obviously we're in not a great mood at the moment but, um and i think there is sort of some more ast- aust- austere dressing but it works in two ways doesn't it? if you sort of dress up more whimsically then maybe it lightens everyone's mood and and creates a, i mean obviously it's cost of living crisis so it's it's a sort of, it maybe a bit flippant to say dressing up in colorful clothes is going to lighten people's mood if, if you can afford it but it it does create a uh you don't really want to dwell on misery, do you? Uh, and uh, and I think menswear uh, has the ability to um, inspire people when you're walking down the street and you see a kind of uh, a scene that you can jump on and and there are, and there's a critical mass of people enjoying themselves and wearing colourful clothes and you think okay it's okay because you know most people are not like me. I kind of have come to realise having having a shop and they may not have so much faith in their own designs or. Uh, they want to be part of a kind of burgeoning scene but I do like to create in my shop when people come by there is a, a real scene of of um individuals really enjoying themselves and and allowing people to to, to experiment with themselves and and wear more color and just enjoy it uh, so yeah so I want to create that um that um vibe where people can can be seen to express themselves and and then more people would join it. And, and that's what, the area I'm in, Chiltern Street. Is that there's uh, cafes and things, people hanging out. So you know, it is happening now, actually. People people are beginning to uh, to enjoy themselves, I think, a lot more with, with menswear uh, cuts.
0: With the cycling and the tweed, is there a lot of overlap with the tweed run and the sort of chat movement and the sort of yeah, nostalgia yeah, yeah. thing?
1: um they, that's really interesting era, isn't it because because i was very much at the, at the at the forefront of all that so i was on the very first tweed run i was very good friends with ted who organized it Who's a really interesting character he used to work for i think he was a creative director at gucci or something um uh, he's super uh, quirky as well in his, in his own dress and then he went through a kind of uh phase of of liking formal wear, this was the time I was telling about. the sort of electro swing kind of time, people rediscovering dressing up. But then there was a lot of sort of fetishistic dressing. So one day you'd get someone uh, dressing up in a tweed suit and the correct tie and stick. And the next day um, they'd be dressing up in rubber, a sort of rubber ball, or they'd be covered in tattoos. So there was a whole kind of fetish. <laughs> it was, it was, it was dressing. It was fancy dress and nostalgia and fetishism. So, um, so as mu- as fun as it as that scene is. I had to, and a, and a tweed drum was great fun because it had lots of values that went with the idea of cycling around and being a gentleman. Uh, and the whole chat magazine is also, uh, you're, you're familiar with the uh, with Gustav and the yeah, chap. Yeah, um, so yeah he, that was very amusing time because that was the rediscovery of um, correct dressing. But there was a huge sense of humor. So the kind of idea of the chat magazine is you... You were sort of really a working class lad living in Croydon, but you pretended through this, and that's where sort of nostalgia and the fetishism and the things I try and avoid slightly come in. But it's very amusing. You pretend you're from a wealthy family, and it's your butler's day off, and uh, you've given the butler day off, so you have to kind of rough it on your own, and you have to cook your kippers in your Corby trouser press at home because the uh, the butler the butler's not <laughs> not there. Uh, uh, but then but then you can still wear your old tweed and uh, and. And you know you can sort of riff on Bertie Wooster and and, it's, and and the fact you're an out of work actor, whatever you may be, you just you, you play on the fact you're a gentleman because obviously gentleman doesn't really um, have to work; they get private income from their estate. And being a gentleman, part of the whole thing is uh, is is you know not not having to toil with your with your hands. So there was that whole humour of people who didn't ha- didn't have jobs, couldn't have jobs, dressing up as gentlemen and the chat magazine sort of. Uh, um, indulging them i think in that kind of uh uh humor but i mean i, I kind of i did enjoy it and they used to have great parties I had a very good fun friend of mine who had a shop called time for tea he was called johnny and he dressed up a lot in vintage he uh, he had a vintage mustache he looked like he just sort of dropped out of a 1930s film and he had 1930s cars and um drink gin out of teacups with um actually I think, <laughs> and then they had lots of parties with um Again, you know, with kind of this electroswing music and uh, mixed with the twenties and a bit of modernism thrown in. But ultimately, it was a fancy dress sort of scene, and the idea of nostalgia is is a world into itself where everything nostalgic is is better better than it than it was. Uh, so, so that's a very fine line, and I've had to sort of uh, I'm not cut myself off from it because there are a lot of people who've got a sense of humour and like what we're doing, which is modernising tweed and thinking very much uh, in a forward futuristic way um but they're and they're people who like living in a nostalgic 30s way who like what we're doing so there's a crossover but personally i i try to sort of shun the idea of fancy dress uh or menswear as fancy dress or dressing up in for nostalgia or thinking that anything in in the past um is the only way to do things because uh, some people are then horrified, going, "Oh, you can't! This, you know, that's, that's outrageous! You can't possibly um, not wear wear your cravat tied like that, or not wear the scarf. That's not how things were done." But you know, you just got to free yourself up from those shackles of of as you're saying, nostalgia. But but it's a great movement because it's, it was something that people could really latch onto, yeah. and it was. Uh, and I'm always up for a party. So any uh, any group of people that's going to throw a party is uh, is fine is fine with me.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I think they're uh, what they're doing is fun. I think it started out as more fun, and now it's become more serious because the sort of nostalgia rules have sort of kicked in because that kind of guy has has joined in. yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, as I was saying earlier, rules are meant meant to be break broken, but when you're in the beginning, you know when you're starting school, you have to sort of step in line um and wear your uniform. And then when you're in the sixth form, as my kids are now, they can wear whatever clothes they want. So there is a whole, you know, it's obviously it's an English privileged public school kind of system, but there's um in those people who are aspiring to that fancy dress rules tweed kind of dressing. Actually it's interesting, uh listening to that last your last podcast that I was listening to about people rediscovering the rules of American preppy dressing. And then this person was talking about the rise of the forums like Ask Andy and London Lounge and those pretty odd geeky people (laughs) you've got to stay away from but but um the worst thing for a man is to go to a party a black tie party and not be in the correct black dress you know whether your your bow tie is not tied up correctly you haven't um, you're not wearing the right cufflinks you're not wearing dress studs on your uh, dress shirt that's you know the very worst thing a man could imagine uh, the very worst thing a woman can imagine is wearing the same red dress as another woman in the party not being different so there's a, there's a complete um, uh, contradiction you know to to kind of going to a board if you're a man or going to a board if you're a if you're a woman so you can totally understand that the men uh, especially if it's in a work environment or anything, want to, want to know what the rules are so they can, uh, they can fit in. So you can see where all that, uh, uh, all that comes from.
0: Yeah. I was nodding along while you were talking about how the men must have their correct black tie and all this, but really that's totally unrelatable for me. I, really? I don't even have a suit. <laughs> oh, that's a, I mean that is a shame
1: because ultimately <laughs> men in suits, I mean suit has evolved over hundreds and hundreds of years to make a man look fabulous. And, and and that is the sort of function of a suit. All the kind of f- amusing tailors of um, in Savile Row, uh, where you go, oh, you don't need to go to a gym, sir. you just need a better tailor. Um, so you just, just to sort of correct all your imperfections. Um, so, yeah, you should, I mean, wearing a really well-cut suit is t- such a pleasure.
0: That, that's a valid point, though. A suit can correct more than you can achieve at the gym. I mean... And also, it sounds a lot more pleasurable. And
1: uh... <laughs> Actually, I, I learned that firsthand when I was at university. And it was, um, it was in the 80s and 90s. So there were a lot of kind of uh, uh, black tie balls. It was very much the thing. And um, you could pick up a black tie um, dinner jacket made in a heavy sort of barathea cloth for, you know, for hardly anything. Um, I remember going right uh, into a ball, uh, going to the local kind of vintage shop, picking up a, uh, a dinner suit, um, not really trying it on too well. The person said, this will fit you. I think it got like a tenor or something, and then trying it on. And it was made for a hunchback. And it had this <laughs> <laughs> it had this absolutely fascinating. I wish I kept it. Absolutely fascinating uh, load of padding, sort of you know, the horsehair and the um uh, and all wadding all on one shoulder, this great big lump. Of course I wasn't the hunchback, so I looked like I was the opposite of so rather than filling in the hunch. It um, it created one on, on me, so ended up <laughs> feeling like a hunch, uh, you know, a, a hunchback to most of the evening because it, it sort of had the uh, obviously the correction was on the wrong, wasn't was uncorrected. So, anyway.
0: well, if uh, the intent was to make an impression, I'm sure you did.
1: Oh uh, yes, I think so. <laughs> well, the nice thing about though, having a black tie fabric is that you don't, no one really notices it. That's that, that kind of uniformity um, of um, of. Um, of clothes you know, everyone wearing uh smart uniform clothes uh it does look good and i do i do when you go out to sort of events and you see things and you think, think these people should be kind of creating a nice uh impression you go to weddings now no one wears um morning coats and it does look so good for, for as, as a photographer when you're photographing a friend at a wedding and all the guests are wearing morning, morning suits and um, the bride and groom are sort of standing out there's just, just a beautiful scene but then everyone has uh, weddings now in colourful lounge suits and quite frankly this the scene looks like a bit of a mess so i think there's a lot to be said for um and i love i love dressing up uh, in all occasions but if there's a kind of dress code then i'd sort of adhere to the dress code because that's the whole joy of wearing black tie white tie and morning suits all those uh, you know, top hats, whatever it is. It's, there's a, it's great to have. And I like fencing as well. So I've got fencing clothes and climbing clothes and any. I took about beekeeping and bought myself beekeeping outfits um, first thing. I love I love clothes for an occasion. So uh, there's a lot to be said for dressing appropriately for the occasion. And I sort of, I sound like an old man here, but I sort of slightly demise, uh, uh, um, it's slightly sad the sort of demise of, of correct dressing for occasions.
0: You're talking about weddings, and I think a lot of weddings nowadays are sort of cheap rental suits uh, because everyone has to wear the same skinny, fitting one in the same colour and so forth.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it's okay if it's... Yeah, I saw you
0: starting to perspire here. And, uh, um, yeah, the idea... <laughs> of, the idea.
1: <laughs> but as a chap came into my shop yesterday, he, he didn't own a suit and he was... Um, I did a favor for him, actually. I just measure, I took all his measurements so his friends could get him a, a suit for the wedding he was going to in Canada. Um, but I did sort of, uh, I, was, I was slightly perspiring, thinking, oh, my god, he's going to end up being just not being measured up properly, being given some sort of ghastly thing to have to wear at his friend's wedding without. That's why codes, dress codes, which people we're talking about, uh, like studying, are, for certain occasions, they are, I feel, sort of important, because they create a fabulous scene. But maybe, you know that's just um the idea of a of an establishment scene is just not a trend at the moment so it's maybe it's just my own view of uh, standing like a sort of old, older older chap having remembered those times rather than what's contemporary
0: yeah you're right you do sound old now <laughs> <laughs> I am, i'm curious though you have hinted at times about interesting customers coming into your shop what sort of person sort of finds their way to the shop and is seduced by the the ravey tweeds
1: um actually that is that's, that's an interesting thing the only thing you can say about um is they're all individuals so it's 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 really hard and when i was doing the marketing for the shop thinking how can i how can i categorize all the people who i attracted to the shop um and the only thing i could say was they were all individuals so it's very very hard to um like when you see a crowd scene. there's always an individual you see a group of i look out for kind of dashing to customers so you see a, a stag party uh, of of 10 lads and there's always one who's kind of the life and soul of the party slightly more amusing a bit sort of has more confidence and is dressing up and that would be the sort of dashing customer so I mean we've had people like we've made golf outfits for Robbie Williams and uh uh, uh sort of ma- mavericks there's a chap called Robin who's a, a head of a big uh, ad, ad agency and he loves wearing purple and we make him amazing outfits so we've even we've wove him his own cloth um so so it's very hard to pin your Pin your finger on individuals because they can all be individual in their um, in their own right. Uh, but um, yeah, it's that confidence. Uh, I mean, they're all they're all life and soul of the party, uh, intriguing, fun customers. Um, as uh, yeah, every, I mean, from all walks of life, that's the other 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 fun things. Whether they're sort of jockeys or uh, heads of banks or something, so it, it's a uh, it's a kind of. Um, I don't like to use the word dandyism because that sort of uh, fills, goes in too much of the sort of chat magazine and everything, but there is a certain dandyism to all the customers. And that dandyism can be like, you know, you see a punk walking down the street and they've well, you hardly, I live in Camden, there are a few sort of punks left, but there's that dandyism of really having to sort of stick your hair up and put on your makeup and everything. Or there's a dandyism to wearing an absolutely immaculately cut suit. Uh, and that's the sort of characters who find their way to, uh, find their way to us
0: yeah that, that is an interesting observation so it's sort of not for the shrinking violets really it's for people who actually dare to be what they want to be uh yeah ironically though there is a whole psychological um uh
1: phenomena whereas if you are a shrinking violet um i've some of my friends who are who are neither shrinking violets nor i mean they're not really bothered to be honest uh, but uh yeah, i force them into and i force them in sort of persuade persuaded to buy a sort of dashing suit um, and find like a, a fantastic purplish one um go to a party and they can, uh, come back again. you know i went to a party all the girls came and chatted to me they said it looked amazing gave me such confidence and to so my son said the other day it was a very nice quote i should have written it down verbatim he's because we made him a, a suit in one of our more sober um it's called the navy the night vibe it's in uh, blue and black with a wiggly line it's a really beautiful cloth um but he uh got he was wearing it at uh, school in the sixth form and the teachers um uh, he was putting his hand on last question And the first thing the teacher said is before you ask the question i've got to say you've got a fabulous suit and then my son <laughs> came back from school and said wearing this dashing suit just gives me such confidence i never feel more confident when i'm wearing a dashing suit and um yeah that's that's a great thing I mean, he's you know 18 year old boy to say and he's um he's just starting out in life and getting that, that feedback which is really nice i wouldn't say he's a dandy at all um, in fact, he wears suits really well because he's completely not bothered. I mean, he's happier wearing football kits. But he, when you he put him in a in a well tailored suit, he just wears it completely nonchalantly. No, like you know, tugging at your knickers like a sort of young girl whose dress is not long enough. You know, that kind of uh, fiddling with your clothes. He's um, wearing it with complete confidence. And then the suits give him confidence. So, so yes, most of the customers who come to the shop are kind of dandies. But if you get ones who slightly erring on the side of 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 confidence. Then putting them in something that's a little bit more exaggerated boosts their confidence. Uh, yeah, it's a good,
0: uh, it's a good thing. Hmm. So, given that you're sort of in the fe- left field of tweed, I think I might say, compared to pretty much everyone else in the tweed business.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, in some parts we are, some parts we are, but in design we're very much in the left field of tweed, and um, like tweed traditionally is the uh, Is the fabric. Actually, the great thing about tweed is actually it's a a classless fabric because it was going to say it was going to be the kind of fabric for aristocrats hunting, shooting, and fishing in Scotland. And it was traditionally a kind of uh, camouflage. And famous um, people like uh, uh, Lord Lovett um, would then get his ghillies to hold up tweeds on the moors and see which ones disappeared. I mean, ironically, though, in order for the colours, the tweed, the fabric to disappear as camouflage on moors, they'd have to have kind of bright, heathery colours and interesting greens. So fabrics would be really interesting colours. Um, but then also sort of anyone else wanting to uh, disappear into the countryside, like poachers or sort of other, other people would then be wearing a, a ruffable tweed as well. So, so it wasn't just the um, fabric of the uh, aristocracy, it was, uh, it was, it's, the, it's the denim uh, of, um, of England, really, of, of Britain, Great Britain. And as you know, denim is the original kind of wear of uh, gold miners—people, uh, you know, going out uh, hard, wearing clothes for, for, for prospecting and looking for gold nuggets. So, if you think of tweed as that, then it, it changes your perspective uh, if you think of it as a in, as denim. Although, yeah, obviously, it's made f- from wool, which is far superior, in my view, to cotton. Um, but yeah, yeah. Going back to what you were saying, um, we explore we've taken that idea of tweed as kind of camouflage for the country and brought it into an urban environment so we're doing tweeds with yellow lines and playing with humor and you know, i just love clothes that amuse me so a lot of our designs are for sheer amusement bringing in bright colors because tweed is also the traditional way that men would wear a colorful uh, uh lounge suit sportswear. I mean, it's basically sportswear so if you say to a young kid now are you um uh, go get put on some sportswear they may wear some fluoro polyester clothes um, if you say to someone in their 70s oh, i like your sports jacket they'll be wearing a tweed jacket so so that's the idea that in my view is that tweed is the original sportswear and i've been combining it with high-tech sportswear hence the uh, reflective ideas but also the sort of bright colors so we're, we're doing all this kind of aspect because tweed is such a fantastic vehicle for color and wearability um so that's the thing where we're a maverick and we're Filling this gap in for people who want, well, as in my case, you want an extreme dose of something very amusing and colourful. Is not for everyone, but then, then we're quite mainstream in the fact that we work with mills in Scotland in the Borders. We work with Harris Tweed mills. Very keen on promoting British wool, which really needs to be talked about and given a given a leg up because wool is, you know, pretty much the greatest material there is. It was the whole wealth of of Britain in the Middle Ages was from wool. Um, uh, it's just fascinating the history of wool um norwich i think was the second richest city after london in the middle ages and built entirely on the wool trade um and um you know the whole hundred years of war was um was extended because of wool embargoes of flanders i mean just reading about the history of wool in and the, obviously in um, parliament people sit on a wool sack to remind them but the um the um general British public need to be reminded about how fabulous wool is, and that's in, in terms of the mainstreamness of of wool and tweed. I like to think dashing tweeds is very much sitting sitting in the larger larger picture, um, in terms of the kind of really promoting uh, British manufacturing, weaving. Uh, the, obviously, finishing is a very important part of the fabric, washing the fabric, um, and so yeah, we work with all the most traditional um, people there. And the interesting thing is the uh, the traditional mills which have the most fabulous quality, they're happy to do our designs which are more maverick because they can see that it's producing um, a fabric that uh, gets attention and, and brings the story of, of how great British manufacturing and wool and weaving
0: is. Yeah. I wanted to pick up on what you said about um, tweed being the sort of British version of denim because tweed and sort of proper heavy denim do go well together, they both have a certain heft, a certain weight, Uh, there's a confidence in the fabrics, and they do look good together, Uh, but I often find that the sort of designs that a tweed is made into, they sort of stick to Well, what was made in the 50s and 60s, still the two, three button jackets of a certain design that has sort of been made ever since, is there a lot of evolution in design? Um, actually, it's funny to say that. A girl came into my
1: shop. She, was, uh, uh, she lived in Hong Kong. She's a beautiful girl and she makes hats um, yesterday. And she was wearing really heavy, super cool wide jeans, and then she was wearing this waistcoat that was too big for her, but she belted it around. It was quite long uh, around her waist with a big leather belt, and then had a tweed jacket and a tie on. She looked so cool, and she was just from combining... your
0: description, I can tell that that was very cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, she looked brilliant, and she was combining denim and tweed in such in such a good way. Um, but um, yeah they are the same uh, they they're um they come to the same point from different directions obviously uh denim's made of cotton um and um and it's was uh, made for for cowboys and uh, gold diggers uh back in back in the day people would go off when they're prospecting and they'd buy the heaviest denim uh, jeans they could they could get hold of they probably if they were going through uh, um Panama up that way to go to the klondike they'd pick up a panama hat and they'd pick up a few other kind of fantastic kind of hardy clothes um, and you know f- seek their fortune and then uh, uh over in england if you were um uh ha- having to sort of dig for well probably not digging for gold digging for coal i guess or some equally hard hard um outfit uh, hard wearing um sorry hard task of of digging um you'd be wearing a really thick wool the the welsh uh, wool, uh, welsh coal miners were wearing really thick cheviot wool um suits also dyed blue i think quite interestingly interestingly um and um yeah so so it'd be, that'd be quite interesting thing wouldn't it to, to, to look at sort of a gold digger and a, and a coal miner and and from from the era of just hard wearing workwear and what what they were wearing one made in cotton and one made in wool uh, but you're right it's just, it's, there's a lot of similarity between it
0: yeah um, there were a couple of times during our chat now that you've made my brain ping. With regards to, are you familiar with the books of William Gibson? Oh uh, yes, we're not Canadian, that familiar, Canadian but... science fiction, science fiction writer. Yeah, because he has this Blue Ant trilogy, which I haven't is read that. No, partly you tell me set in London, and Mister Fish pops up there oh, because really? Hubertus. Big End or Bigend, the leader of the Blue Ant advertising agency, has a Mr. Fish suit. Or it's not actually by Mr. Fish, but by his cutter, who's he's really This is very specific. And it's in a Klein Blue fabric. And I found fantastic. I'm going to read this book. So, I love science fiction. So everyone can see him miles away. Yes. But he also has this little shop just off Soho called Tanky and Tojo, which is run by this. <laughs> little japanese man and they do transgressive trad tweeds brogues and stuff which and whenever i read this i sort of think of what what you're doing that, that could have been you
1: <laughs> i can't believe i haven't i haven't heard of this book i should have, uh, it's fantastic i'm going to read it right away it's obviously it, set set it's in a the mid, mid 60s
0: no 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 um, it's set in uh uh 2000s i think oh, early uh because when yours, was it when was it written uh 2010 12 Okay, um, but it also includes um, secret brands, heavyweight, indigo-laden denim. William Gibson is very attuned to things happening in the clothes world.
1: Oh, that sounds right up my street. i gonna... <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, what I was talking about. A zeitgeist. Obviously, that must be must have come. He must have been thinking of it at the I same time. I think he was picking was... up
0: very much the sort of 2010ish menswear scene. Uh, but the tanky and Tojo shirts also have an excessive amount of buttons at the arm. And uh, whenever think... I'm reading this, I just read the whole trilogy again for the, probably the fifth time. Whenever I read this, I'm still sort of thinking, that is the sort of clothes I want. That sounds so great. Oh, brilliant. Well, you
1: have, we have to you have to come to my little kind of secret um, hidden shop and we can kit you out. Yes. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna buy straight, straight away and, and buy some copies of these. Uh,
0: I'll, of, I'll send you the t- titles afterwards.
1: I mean, I think that's, the, that, that, I, mean, I love science fiction, and I just think that's actually one of the roles of science fiction, isn't it, is, uh, is to inspire people, um, uh, uh, look into the future, and then, and then uh, scientists, when they're sort of uh, short of creativity but brilliant on ideas, they look to science fiction and go, oh, this is an idea of, of, of uh, what I was given as a childhood. I'm going to make it happen for, for real. Um, you just have to look at kind of mobile phones, haven't you, like the uh, Star Trek telephones. They just look like Star Trek phones, and, and they started off as sci-fi and then becomes a reality. We even Dick Tracy watches, the iWatches. They're, um, they were in the 50s, weren't they? People talking to their watch. Um, so it's kind of interesting. No
0: flying cars. Um, not Literally. yet. I think they're just around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's where the steampunk thing comes into it, because I find that also very compelling, the visuals. I mean, a lot of it has now become steampunk rules and blah 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 but some of the ideas they're just fantastic imagine a world where there's no electricity it's all steam driven and it's just sort of very powerful yeah, i
1: enjoy see i enjoy steampunks when i, I, I like going like to festivals and there's always a when any festival in england there's always a steampunk corner with kind of <laughs> you can always find it because flames are coming out of sort of giant copper pipes or people are wearing crazy top hats with with monocles attached to them and then some sort of that's one of the rules. Kind of hat have have Oh, you're going to have <laughs> <laughs> a uh, Actually, I went to a very funny festival. It was a, it was full of uh, scientists, and this person was giving in depth um, technical knowledge of how he made a top hat with flames that came out of the top hat, which was uh, which was quite just quite interesting.
0: Okay, <laughs> um,
1: but um, yeah, yeah, that that edge which you're touching on between sci fi, fantasy, and clothes is is i find quite interesting because it's where your bravery and your uh, individuality yourself so you read a you read a book with a fantasy character and then you think i want to sort of be like that character and whether you're going to be like that character in a kind of cosplay fancy dress world or whether you're going to extend your your sense of self and maybe you could call it fancy dress into the everyday world that's a quite interesting fine boundary that um I think more people should experiment with
0: that sort of leads into making clothes that last not technically but in the aspect of we talk about sort of buy better buy once or rather the way around uh, buying stuff that we will like for a long time and i'm sure you have a dozen ideas about how that comes about
1: um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm such a fan of tailoring, and that's just a totally a, a part and parcel of anything tailored. Is the idea of longevity because clothes are constructed in, this, in a way where they can be unpicked and resewn and made bigger and smaller. But then the, the interesting thing is is where, the, is where the style aspect comes in. And if you actually if you haven't clothes for long enough, menswear styles come round. So you kind of sort of half the thing is keeping your clothes without the moths getting to them and then and then letting them come back into fashion or sort of refashioning them or then just having the individuality uh whereby your style your personal style is above fashion which i think is the ultimate uh role of the english uh, well, the english the, the gentleman as a character um going through life with their own individual style i think that's almost a kind of um uh a sort of Zenith, it's the thing uh, you know, kind of uh, I can't think of the word. Well, you know, sort of apex to hit, to, to, to hit. But having your own your own style that transcends fashion, um, and then clothes inevitably last forever because they're your clothes and you're not touched by fashion trends. So that's there, there's two things going on. One, the physical actual aspect of of good quality wool, and again, just saying how fabulous wool is and it lasts forever, um, more or less. Nestor Moths so and then Wool's Nemesis. But um uh there's that aspect of the physical and then there's the aspect of the sort of fashion. And I think as a, a confident dresser you can transcend, transcend the fashion and make it your personal style, which is a thing that people are always referring to. I mean, a number of times you see a sort of Second-rate man style magazine as having pictures of the same sort of James Deans or um, uh, I don't know Hollywood uh, movie stars, um, Cagnes and things, just looking uh, stylish and go. This is uh, this isn't fashion. This is just style forever. Uh, that is what people want to aspire to, but it shouldn't be aspiring to a a style that someone tells you to copy from from a uh, I don't know. Sean Connery Bond film, it's the, thing, the thing you really need to do, it's like learning music, isn't it, is fluency yourself. You can you can copy someone else's tune, but ultimately you need to be singing your own tune. And I like to think as Dashing Tweeds to sort of help people along that journey, of becoming a fluent dresser and, a, and singing their own tunes, and then we can help create it. That's what, uh, that's, that's what I consider my role as setting up Dashing Tweeds to be.
0: No, right, no I've got so many follow-up questions, so I'm just gonna start <laughs> with the first one. Um, Because what you're saying there about the sort of cult of celebrity, the celebrity style, James Dean, sort of, he just sort of, their style is sort of revered down the decades and so forth. But to take an example, when Robbie Williams needed his golfing suit from you, was it him that got in touch because he wanted it? Or was it his stylist that suggested that... Robbie, actually, rather annoyingly, you know I
1: was—I wasn't—I wasn't in my shop when he popped by. He popped by to the shop, and then—and um, then his wife, who, had, who I'd met um, quite a few years ago, uh, then got him, him as a present. But yeah, no, it was a personal thing. Uh, it wasn't just—we had worked with his stylist, actually, fun enough, um, and he—and he uh, went through a whole phase of liking our clothes. Um, but um, yeah, no, he's an individual. I mean, that the example of the type of individual character who—who uh, um, who really enjoys our our clothes. You know, people have people have heard of uh, but uh people who uh who lack confidence obviously latch on celebrities because the uh, the magic of the celebrity uh you know it, uh, drifts onto you by wearing uh wearing the, wearing the look it's I, I think it's good i think if you it's a it's a good start to dressing well isn't it if people copy a celebrity um albeit you know, whoever it is from from any era I, the whole golden era of hollywood uh had lots of fabulous tailored clothes um, you start off with that, and then it gives you confidence because you feel like um, uh, there's some, there's, who is it? There's some, Edward sexton has been making these fabulous trousers. Well, no one he does, he's got his own style. But there was another movie star who had these uh, high-waisted trousers, and they were worn with a belt, but you'd see the whole top trousers. It was a really cool style. But you put those uh, wide leg trousers on with this certain um, belt detail, um, and you do just feel really cool. I mean, that's, that's the one aspect of clothes that that is so important, is, is that whole emotional side of just putting them on and just feeling like, yeah, I'm I'm where it's at.
0: I have follow-up questions to that as well, but I want to follow up with my <laughs> initial follow-up question there. Um, if a, a celebrity does become famous and is revered for their style, at which point do they lose confidence in their own judgment and hire a stylist? Uh, that's a very good point. I mean, um, actually, we had a, a chap... Um,
1: i was hopefully going to start working with. He's just on a big television show at the moment, come to the shop, and he had a great personal style, and he uh, he loved what we were doing, and there was a certain um, uh, 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 common interest, and so we're going to sort of dress, dress him, and, and he said he's, he deliberately doesn't go through stylists. But then the whole world of stylists is just very much commercialism, isn't it? You see that fantastic film about dressing for the Met Ball, and everyone's squabbling over which celebrity they're going to dress, and it's all just how anyone can get um, uh, their designer uh, can get their clothes out to the public on the certain celebrity, and the celebrity sells the clothes. I mean, it's just a whole machine. It's it doesn't interest me at all any of that kind of uh, that kind of stuff. It's just it, it's just money and 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 marketing. And I and I, it, you don't often see uh, a celebrity in that kind of arena who is you don't you don't know who they are. You know, they're they're manufactured. they um you know their character is being created by uh, the, the whole industry and the clothes are created by the industry, uh, it's, there are very few people where you think this is really the, the person, this person is really interesting. I mean, that probably happens more with, with behind-the-scene cre- creatives who don't need that spotlight, um, who, uh, who, 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 dress, who dress well. I'm very good friends with Guy Chambers, who writes all Robbie, Robbie Williams's uh, songs, and he's, he's an amazing creative and loves our clothes and dresses really, really well. Um, that's the, much more interesting to me than just a manufactured celebrity there's no authenticity if you're just buying no vehicles. no i mean it's yeah yeah it's, it's just it's just it's just money selling things isn't it having clothes put on put on um backs of guinea pigs on the guinea pigs you know backs of um uh you know people just to, just to <laughs> flog, flog, flog. so that's that's the fashion industry isn't it um, that whole celebrity celebrity stuff i kind of uh, I, i'm not in i'm not in awe of there's no celebrities who i think they're they're amazing uh, there are loads of creatives who I think are amazing. There are loads of individuals who I think are amazing. Um, there are loads of people who come to the shop who I just think are fabulous and just really enjoy. That's my customers. Just They've got their own ideas um, who I think are great. Um, in fact, I've got someone coming this afternoon to the shop. I'm going to meet them. We're making him a wedding outfit, and it's just off the charts. They've made him a matching beret. I think it's just so cool. Um, but <laughs> that's that's what it's all about. The uh, Going back to what I said earlier, it's all about individual, individuality. And, and when it... Um, and when it comes to the celebrity world, it's it's 99% manufactured.
0: Yeah. Um, looping back to something you said earlier about wanting stronger drugs all the time, because you might think the first time you wander into a shop and have a, a suit made, that this is going to be my suit for life. Uh, a month later, you're thinking, maybe I need one more. Yeah, yeah. People yeah. get a bit <laughs> sort of caught up in this. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, I mean, that's obviously what we uh, what we want to have. Or ha- having lots of our customers, and it does happen loads. They kind of come in, and they're just trying on a new suit. And they go, "Oh my god, it's so good!" And they see another cloth, and they immediately order another one. Um, but it's 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 just the joy, I and mean, as well as going back to saying earlier, is happiness and joy is a thing that uh, ultimately uh, everyone's aspiring to. And everyone's there's so much talk about mental health and how social media uh, makes you feel miserable. Um, So the opposite is sort of dressing in fabulous clothes and being individual, uh, just being happy with what you've created just gives you such a euphoric buzz and you obviously think of the feedback you get when you're going to parties or walking down the street and people talking to you and you're creating this world um, surrounded by um, you know, where you're the centerer and you're getting admiration, and and it makes you feel fabulous. So so it's a it's a very it's a very harmless way to get kicks, uh, dressing uh, dressing up and getting good feedback and getting the sort of endorphin kits. So it's not surprising that you're going to come back for some another another kick. Um, uh, so yes, yeah, so that is uh, that's my I guess my personal journey. Uh, but it's just yeah, it's just so much fun, isn't it? Just um in. Creating There's the cre- the joy of creativity, the joy of, of wearing your personality, uh, a visible sign of your personality, uh, people responding to it, making friends. You you, you walk around uh, in a well-dressed, I mean, if you're a beautiful, beautiful girl, you see that everyone opens doors for you. The world's an amazing place and it's scientifically proven. It's called the halo effect. You're going to um, earn more money, have a more cushy life and be, be fitter and live longer um in a way if you know if you're not a beautiful girl um uh not that it needs to be a beautiful girl or if you're an old ugly man or whatever if you're wearing a beautiful suit you do get you do get a bit of that halo effect um so so it is it is um uh, uh you know, a great way to to enjoy life yeah. hmm. <laughs> it's for it's for everyone as well isn't it dressing up That's yeah something
0: something i've been thinking about recently is um I keep seeing photos of old or older people, and they're they're sort of commented on that they have such fantastic style. And I look at these photos, and I think they're not following any sort of fashion. They're probably just wearing stuff they really like, which they've had for a long time. So it fits them. It's comfortable. They like it. And it's just sort of gelled for them.
1: Uh, yeah, that's what I was saying. That was the ultimate, you know, the ultimate thing you aspire to. The pinnacle of uh, of, of dressing is just to sort of have your own personal style, and and it, and it te- can take a really long time. So you do see really cool old men, and um, and they're walking around with their. Start stereotyping. You're saying they're walking around with a hat and a cane because they could just be walking around in kind of uh, trainers and jeans and just and just have a certain shirt and a certain. Um, there's a stylist I work with, and he's always wearing these floaty scarves. His clothes that are like just blown on him. He's he's uh, tall and elegant, and just has this sort of elegant mannerisms. And it's just so cool. And, uh, and I I really really want to find some older men to uh, to model. It's just really hard finding those finding those people uh, to to. to, to um, Push that uh, that level through, and actually, the great thing about uh, society breaking down with uh, gender and everything is ages—you know, ages being broken down as well. So, so it's no longer being 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 old, which isn't isn't a barrier anymore.
0: I I do see that the older models used do sort of fit very much into a certain look, because they are exceedingly handsome, of a certain height, athletic build. Uh, So they are as stereotypical as every other model it's not as if they uh, uh,
1: yeah i mean the sort of, market person of
0: uh, short fat men hasn't taken off yet
1: <laughs> um well you you say that we're well, going back to what you were saying earlier when you just see someone with their own style you can see a short fat man wearing a great suit which has been tailored for and it's a real thing of beauty because it's as i was saying before when you're talking about how a close-fitted tailored suit just is so comfortable to wear so if you see an immaculate Almost totally spherical man who's been tailored in Savile Row. It's a real thing of beauty. And you can see see them uh, I don't know, dancing the party or drinking at a restaurant. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. But the uh, the problem is for the models and the catwalk and all that stuff is that people, uh, c- companies have to make clothes in a certain size, which they can um, do for the catwalk. So you inevitably have to have sort of like a 40 long suit and find a 40 long old model. Um, so that is that is just sort of the difficulty. But uh, yeah, if you keep about what you were saying, uh, keep your eyes out and see an immaculately dressed, wrinkly old man who's totally rotund wearing a, a, a beautifully fitted suit. And, and it's something that's really special to admire
0: Thinking back to when you were starting out and you found this young student at her show with a fridge full of fabrics and you exploited her expertise, <laughs> um, is she still with you? Is she still uh, part of the dashing team? Oh, what absolutely, is, yeah, What yes. is Kirsty uh, doing?
1: Uh, Kirsty, um, yeah, she runs our studio. She's moved down to, um, um, to, um, to uh, Hastings, actually, on the coast um, and taken the studio with her. Um, and we, she's still got the original loom, which we bought for Dashing Tweeds, and she's still doing uh, fabulous designs twice a, twice a season and special bespoke designs as well. Um, so we do quite a lot of collaborations. Actually, one thing I haven't touched on is we do quite a lot of collaborative projects. So anyone listening to this who's keen on a bespoke weave, then that's a very much a part of our business. And Kirsty is very much part of, uh, of that weaving thing. But I've got more people in the team, so I've got uh, a whole team of fabulous people. Um, uh, in the shop, I can't name all their names, but they've got it's, it's growing a growing team, and uh, they're all uh, talented weavers and business people and running the shop. And uh, yeah, it's it's a real little family I've created.
0: You mentioned the collaborations. Are there any? I, I've actually never heard of any of them apart from the Converse one you mentioned earlier. But uh, are there other ones of note you might like to mention?
1: Uh, in the past, we did things with Fred Perry, uh, Billionaires Boys Club. We did some fabrics for. Uh, met Pharrell Williams uh, a long time ago, very briefly. Um, and um, we're working for some other Japanese brands, some tailors. Yeah, they're little, little things. People can look at our social media. And, but a lot of the times, we have to sign NDAs so we can't really talk about them. We do things with the film industry we can't talk about. But um, yeah, people come to us for really special fabrics. Uh, that's the uh, that's, that's quite interesting. And we're expert in weave design. And we've worked with so many... Um, different yarns and colours and we really have I like to think a fabulous uh, sense of colour and modernity and uh, a no fear in designing something new so people come to us for some fearless fabulous colourful new designs
0: that sounds like the name of a new company <laughs> <laughs> fearless, designs. fearless designs yes. okay guy thanks so much for having a chat with me today absolute pleasure thank you very very much for asking me And uh, until next time, bye-bye for now. Yeah, see you in London. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest. Just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.